following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Glad to worship with you and continue in our worship as we open up God's Word. Now this morning we, we put a close to our, uh, our final installment of our three-part series uh, through, through our mission statement, our three-part mission statement. If you're new with us, Holy Cross exists to magnify God's glory to live as God's people, to engage in God's mission. And these three pursuits derived from God's word, are they become for us our ministry objectives. It is, it is the thing that everything that we do flows out of these three pursuits. And believe it or not, everything that we do, whether it's the songs that we sing, the, the, the people we put at the doors to greet, our life groups, collecting toothbrushes for Peru, I mean, all of these things are meant to communicate these three values, these three pursuits. And so we're in 1 Peter again, and will you turn with me this time to chapter 2, starting in verse 9. We'll read a few verses in, in chapter 2, and then we're going we're gonna to jump to chapter 4 and read a, a few more verses there. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now go to chapter 4, verse 8, please. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is our third part of our three-part mission statement. And for some of us, this is going to be probably maybe even your favorite one. I mean, this is the, this is the one you've been waiting for. And for, for others, for, for some of you, it might even be really difficult to swallow. I've even heard that from some of you of anticipating this series. You're like, I really like the first one. I really like the second one. I'm really worried about the third one. Maybe you're there. But either way, wherever you are, whether this is something you anticipate, you're excited about, whether it's new to you, whether it's foreign, whether it's really familiar and you're really excited, um, I pray that we would enter into this, hear from God's word, and that we would be people that, that, that rejoice in this, that we celebrate this pursuit and see it as something that God desires for us. And so, like we've asked this question every week before, what is our mission? What is our aim? Our aim is to engage in God's mission. Here is why I think it's really important 
important enough to make this into the top three? Because that's a good question. All right, so what three things, what makes it into your top three on your list of like ultimate three things important for your church? And why does this make it in there? And my belief is that we cannot faithfully live out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, without this. And therefore, we can't, we can't really truly understand what it means to be a faithful church without this. We can't explain Christianity only in terms of identity, which is, this is who we are, we are saved, we are forgiven, we are a child of God. And we can't only describe it in terms of community. We've, we are made together for authentic friendship, we're bound together as God's people, as his family, as his body. But we must also understand what it means to be Christian in terms of our mission. What has God called us to do? And so I want you to think of this verse again, and, and I put in a blank there. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may blank. Now, what we put in that blank is so important. Why has God done all these things? Why has he chosen you, loved you, forgiven you? Why has he let, let you know about Jesus? Why has he revealed to your heart that, we, that you need him, that you need to trust in him? Why have all of these things happened? Why has he given you a church to plug into, a fellowship to have, a people to be blessed by? Why? You might think of a, a variety of different answers for this. Well, for, so that I could be happy, so that I could enjoy my life, so that I can have accountability, so that I could have connection with others, so that I have purpose. All these things are not horrible answers. But what is the most supreme answer? What is the right first answer for why God has done all this? Peter tells us. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is being really churchy here. And I'll explain what I mean by this. He is describing a bunch of words like he is, he is using Christianese through and through. A royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you might proclaim, he's saying, so that you might preach. He's saying, he's saying here, I want you to see what he's doing here. He is describing all of these terms that people would understand that would be exclusive to like the, the, the professional Christians, the professional religious leaders, the people who work for a living in the temple, the spiritual leaders of their time. You're a priesthood to proclaim. You're supposed to preach. And normally we think of all the, think of all the activities that a church might be involved in, all the pursuits you know, the ministry, the, the mission, the evangelism, the hospitality, the charity, the uh, benevolence. All these things might be minimized to the activities of the church. And he's taking what is commonly understood of what the church does and, and who the workers are called, preachers, and he says, now I want you to see yourself as that. I want you to see yourself as, as a preacher, one who proclaims the gospel, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. People often tell me, wow, you're, you're a pastor, and, think, and they say, um, well, after they say, so what's it like working 30 minutes a week, you know? <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh, very funny. But they say, it must be really hard to be a pastor. It must be really difficult. I mean, you, gotta, you have to really care for people. You have to dig into God's word. You have to study and know. You have to, like, read a lot. You have to learn. You have to grow in your relationship with God. You have to be kind to people when they're hurting. You have to go out of your way. You have to sacrifice time and money and, and, and opportunity to be there for others. And, and it's like, yeah, that's what you should be too. That's what all, this is what Peter is doing. He's, he's taking what is commonly understood as like a professional Christian. And he's saying this is what God has called all of us to do. 
God calls us to minister the gospel. Who? Everyone who has, has been called out by God and brought into his light and forgiven and given a, an identity and a purpose and a, a people to belong to. He says, you are a minister of the gospel. And the reality of Jesus' good news doesn't begin and end with just changing our hearts, but it goes way beyond that, what Peter shows us. It extends to all areas of our life. And this is why I think this, this topic of the three in our mission statement is maybe the hardest for people to swallow, because it is most, it is, is, it's most broad. It's more broad than any of the others. It is including our entire lives, and it tells us what your whole life is all about. It is primarily about God. Our lives and everything in it belong to him. We are his possession. I mean, if we would talk about some of these words that he uses, it's really insulting. <laughs> you belong to God. You are his possession. You are a bondservant. You belong to him. He has bought you by the blood, his own blood. That is the price that was paid for you. And this isn't, we're not under this rule and ownership of a tyrant. It is not one that is manipulative and mechanical, but one that is relational and, 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 and amazingly intimate in our relationship and, and connected to him and rich in fellowship and great reward. We are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I came across this term this week called glory reflectors, and it really stuck in my mind. And it gives this idea of like an, an iron that is put in hot ambers and sits in the fireplace or in the, in the fire. And you, you know what happens when you have that iron there and, and, and for, for many minutes, and then you pull it out, and the tip of that iron is glowing. It's, it's not on fire, but it is radiating from being in the presence of that fire. And after a while, the iron just glows. And the temptation, I think, for, for any Christian, for church-going Christians, for any Christian, is to have this sit-and-soak kind of mentality. And, and the temptation for any church is to have this sit-and-soak kind of church. We sit, we soak it up, but we are to look at how to, how to look and live. We are to be a people that, that look at God's Word, what He has called us to be, and then live out these things in our life, recognizing that we are all ministers of the gospel. And so as we turn more and more to Jesus, as we turn to him regularly, hearing the gospel, the good news and, of, of his love for us, we're continually being trained, chain, uh, changed from one level of God's grace to another, from one glory to another. We are motivated to bring this blessing, bring this reality of the kingdom, this truth of God's work to the world around us. Without exception. And if only, if only, this is, as I read this, if only Peter could give us some practical advice, I mean like a three points or something. I'm so glad you wonder, because that's exactly what he does. Every application has three points in the Bible, every application. And so we're going to give three. Peter gives amazing practical advice. He says, okay, we're all ministers of the gospel. I understand you're, you're, you're terrified by this. This might be a new way to look at it. But here's what he does as he walks through this passage as he's telling these people, he says, first, you're to keep close watch on your heart and your actions. In verse 11 and 12, he, he says, I urge you, I mean, I am pleading with you, as you are living your life amongst others, to abstain from the passions of your flesh. 
that your conduct, that your heart would be, would be tuned in to God, that you would please like pay attention to how you're living because this is first and foremost important when it comes to being a minister of the gospel. To, to magnifying God's glory, to engaging in God's mission is to keep a close watch on your heart. And this isn't the one that we would go to first if, we, if someone was asking us, how can I engage in God's mission? How can I be a minister of the gospel? We would give them a list of things to do. And Peter says the first thing is to keep close watch in your heart. And I want to let you in just a little bit of some of the dynamics that go into my week as a full-time minister of the gospel, full-time pastor. I think differently knowing that I have to come up here on Sunday and tell you about Jesus. Any motivation to pursue Jesus is a good thing. And I'd be lying if I had to say that having to communicate God's word each week didn't keep my heart in check. It wasn't a helpful aid. And I'm not saying it in a phony way or in a fake way, but I'm saying that knowing that I have to bear witness of, wh of who God is and what his word says gives a check on my heart because I am so prone to, to be tempted, to be impatient, to fall into sin, I'm grateful for this kind of check in my life that when I get frustrate, frustrated in a checkout line or if I get impatient at a restaurant, I think to myself, what if that person shows up at church one Sunday, right? What if they found out I was a pastor? What, is, what, what stumbling blocks am I creating for this person to knowing the love of Jesus? I'm grateful for that, we, for the week of preparation. I'm glad to be able to have that in my week, to be able to preach the gospel because it softens my heart and prepares me. It teaches me. And I feel like I'm the one that learns more, th more than any of you the week leading up to a sermon. Now, what I think Peter is wanting us to think and wanting us to consider is wake up every day like you're about to preach a sermon. Wake up every day thinking, what if that person finds out that I'm a Christian? What if that person finds out that I'm a minister? What if that person comes to my life and sees how I live and sees me telling people about Jesus? And so Peter is saying, I understand this. I understand this tension, this, the, the world that we live in. Keep a close watch in your heart. Not to be that fake person, not just to pretend or be a hypocrite, but actually so that we could be protected, so that our faith would actually be lived out so that we aren't creating stumbling blocks for people to knowing the grace of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, gone are the days of thinking, no one's watching. It's just me and Jesus. We can't think like that. This is the first step in engaging in God's mission, is keeping a check on our heart and our actions. This is where Peter, in this passage, pleads. This is where he's begging us. Because what is the worst thing for, us, for someone who doesn't know Jesus? And actually, I hope that there are even people here today that, that don't know Christ. And I, I welcome you to be a part of this discussion with us, to learn with us. You might even say this, and I would say this. What's the biggest stumbling block to Christianity? I mean, hypocrites. Hypocrites. They, 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 they believe this, but they don't act like this. They confess this, but it's so far from 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 their confession, their life and their attitude and their actions are so far from what, from the Jesus that I'm learning about in the Bible. This is a huge stumbling block. And so Peter is pleading with us. 
act like the love of God has changed your life. Keep a close watch on your heart and how you live. One of the things I think that keep us from actually thinking like this day in and day out is we don't think that we're in a battle. We don't understand that we're actually in a battle in every day. And Peter says our passions wage war against our soul. That we actually are in a very hostile environment. That we are in a war and there's opportunities. Arrows are being shot at us at every angle. And we should be aware of that. Another is that we don't understand that we're sojourners. He calls us sojourners. He says, you're actually wandering. Do you realize that this isn't like your forever home? That we're, we're not just like planted here and say, well, I guess I'm just going to get comfortable. We know that if we're, we're called citizens of heaven, meaning, and, and that we're supposed to love our neighbor, and we're supposed to be sacrificial and generous, we're, we're supposed to serve and engage in our culture, we're supposed to love the people in our culture and in our life, whether they're Christian or not. But we remember that our ultimate this is ultimately a temporary citizenship. You know, you drive from home to work is probably your most familiar, familiar drive. Home to work or home to the grocery store. Think of that route in your day that you do, that you basically do every day or almost every day. And you may know that over 50% of all accidents happen within five miles of your home. Because where there, things become familiar, you become most absent-minded and neglectful, and you become most unaware of your surroundings. Have you ever driven, have you ever driven like 20 minutes on the road, and you've gotten to your destination, and you realize, I don't even think I was awake that whole time. <laughs> Isn't it the scariest feeling? And you're like, thank God I didn't get, get in an accident. It's terrifying. And that's what, that's what life can be like. When we feel, we lay down our guards, we're comfortable, say, well, this is my life. I mean, this day in, day out, the mundane, I'm just living in, I'm, I'm just living in the day to day. And we lay down our guards, we feel comfortable, and that's when the temptation comes. And so in a world that is so familiar to us, we should live with a certain sense of unfamiliarity, a sense of alertness. If we desire to honor Christ, we need to have a close watch in our heart and our actions. Because nothing turns a skeptic off more than hypocrisy. And keeping watch on our heart is necessary to engage in God's mission. Look at the next thing he goes to. Peter says, be careful not to abuse your freedom. He says to not use our freedom as a vice for sin. Now Christians love, love our freedom, as we should. Christians love freedom. It's like our favorite word. Praise God for the freedoms we have. And I'm not being sarcastic. Praise God for the freedoms we have. We are so blessed. Peter says, that doesn't mean that you should exercise every single one of your rights just because you have one. But sometimes we should learn how to, with wisdom, with grace, with love, to lay down our rights in order to serve somebody else. In fact, real freedom, as he would say, Real freedom is only rightly exercised when it's used for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Please don't ask how I know this or why this happens, but every time I read about freedom in the Bible, I think of um, Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. <laughs> freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing, and that's all he left me. Those are the lyrics to the song. 
So here's what's happening. Janis Joplin, hitchhiking with, with Bobby McGee. They're driving along. They're just traveling the country with a guitar and singing. It's raining outside. He gets tired of her and says, you're out of here, and ditches her on the side of the road. And she's now singing in the rain with her guitar. And she says, cool, one less thing to worry about. And then she writes this song. She, she sings this song and then dies of a heroin overdose. <laughs> A, this is a true story. One less thing to worry about. This is real freedom. Real freedom is just having no boundaries. One less thing to worry about. No rules. I don't intend to give a commentary on this song or on the 70s or anything like that, but I will say this, that freedom can be, it can be seen, like this song, as a, a state of being free from boundaries, from law, from obligations, from expectations, from others. And real freedom... Real biblical freedom is not what they think, not, of not living up to anybody's expectation, but using this as an opportunity to serve, to glorify God. There may have been a surge of this kind of thinking in the 60s and 70s, and, and, and even in the first century that Peter is writing to these, his friends. The Jews were very aware that they were ultimately, they belonged to God, not Rome that they, would, they were bound to no human leader apart from uh, one who was appointed from their own family and from their own people. Um, and now these Jewish Christians have a sense of a new kind of freedom. Not only are they Jewish and free from any earthly leader and any governor like Rome, but they are now citizens of heaven, of an eternal heaven, and therefore they are free from the government's rule over them. And Peter is saying, not so fast. Freedom doesn't mean that we are given permission to sin. But real freedom expresses itself in devotion to what is good. Knowing that we are servants of God and we belong to him. The best exercise of freedom is, holding up, is not holding up our rights like a flag and saying, I'm allowed to do this because I'm free. But laying them down when necessary for the benefit of of others and the glory of God. There is no greater expression of this than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, verse 4 to 7, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was Jesus' right to claim equality and glory with God. He was allowed to do that if he wanted to. It was his right, it was his freedom to do it. But he laid it down for the benefit and glory of the Father, for our benefit to max maximize our joy, to redeem us from our sin. He laid down his rights. We can love freedom in the best way, and we can still use wisdom to think about that doesn't mean I have to claim every right. Now, I, I learned this in a very hard way when I was a, a new Christian. And I was in a restaurant, and I was paying for food, paying for the food, and we were waiting for a long time for me for food to come, and they didn't bring my hash browns. I was really upset. And I paid for them. I was like, I paid for it a la carte. 
And it's like, they're getting my money, and I'm paying for this, and I just made a huge stink. And I'm, I, I, I let, the, I let the, the waitress know that she had failed miserably. Like, it was my right to get what I wanted, when I want it. You're the server. I am the customer. And this is, this is uncalled for. I'm not going to have it. And someone turned to me and said, why, why is this such a big deal for you? Why are you getting so worked up? And I said, because it's my right. I deserve this. And he said, you know, sometimes it's good to lay down our rights for the good of others. And I was like, well, that's, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> you know, and I remember that. Now, this is just a basic, it's a basic analogy. It's not something maybe is going to rock your world, but it did mine because it, it cut to my heart. It taught me that just because you have a right doesn't mean you have to exercise it. And we should be thinking about how can I lay down my rights for the benefit of others? How can I have a confidence in what God has done for me? And Peter says this is part of engaging in God's mission. To see ourselves as servants, laying down our rights so that others could be blessed. And then he goes on. And this is what we looked at. I want to look at, at, at chapter 4 mainly. But to be a good steward. Engaging in God's mission requires that we be good stewards. A steward is someone who gladly recognizes that we ourselves, along with everything that we have, belongs to God, belongs to the Lord. Peter says this, we are, we are his possession, we belong to him, we are his servants. Everything we have has been given to us for our enjoyment and for service. On my wedding day, I, I borrowed a couple cufflinks from my, uh, from my father-in-law, and these originally belonged to his father, and they were solid gold cufflinks, they were square, and on them were engraved, on the back were two initials, F.S., because these were solid gold cufflinks given to my grandfather-in-law by Frank, Frank Sinatra. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> and, uh, and he looks at me and he says, take good care of these. I, I immediately knew what, what it meant to be a good steward in that moment. Of, of course, like, duh. <laughs> of, yes, I knew where they were at all times. I enjoyed wearing them, and I returned them with gratitude. I enjoyed them. I told everybody I knew about them, you know, <laughs> including you. Every time I get a room full of people, Frank Sinatra wore his cufflinks, you know. Uh, we're stewards. Everything that we have is a gift from God. We are to care for it, not ever claiming it and hoarding it as our own, but knowing that we are to give an account for how we use it. So my father-in-law came back and, and wanted an account for it and asked for it. You have them. And I knew exactly where they were, and I knew exactly when we were going to return them. And I knew what condition they were in. And I, I enjoyed them with gratitude, knowing that it didn't ultimately belong to me, but it belonged to him, and, and I needed to give it back. And I told this to someone, that everything that we have is a gift from God. It doesn't belong to us. We are we are his possession, therefore everything in our life belongs to him. And he looked at me and said, that is very un-American. <laughs> and I said, you're absolutely right. It is. It is very un-American to think that way. Is it, it is a shift in the way that we think and the way that we use everything that we have. Peter says, be good stewards. Do you want to engage in God's mission? Do you want to live out your identity as a person who has been drawn out of sin and into life? You cannot fully understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus without this. We are all stewards. And he says, be a good steward. See, we are all stewards. We've all been given. But a lot of us can be very bad stewards. And he calls us to be a good steward. So it isn't 
that there are many of us who are good, some of us who are good stewards and other of us are just something else. No, we're either good stewards or bad stewards. And we all have to give an account. There's some, and there's actually troubling parables that Jesus talks about that, that drive this point home. That we should think of all that we have as stewards and, and it's, it's a very serious matter. And when we are not good stewards, we're actually robbing God. We're misusing what he has given to us. And it's of great offense. So when something, what does it mean to be good, a good steward? When something is good, it's, it's fitting. It's like the way that a shoe might fit. Like, how do you like this? If you're trying on a shoe, how does the shoe fit? You might say, it fits good. It, it fits, and what you mean is the size of my foot and the size of the shoe, they, they complement one another. They're right for one another. It is good. It fits well. It's the right length. It's the right width. It, it fits good. And verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And so to be a good steward, it doesn't mean you have to be responsible for how everybody treats all of their stuff. You have to, to be a good steward isn't, you have to be responsible for someone else's stuff. You don't need to worry about how much somebody else makes. You don't need to worry about how little somebody else makes. You don't need to worry about how other people are stewarding their possessions. Peter is saying the measure of grace that you've been given that you received should be a good fit for your measure of gratitude and service. Think of the cufflinks again. The measure of care and enjoyment is directly related to the measure of my maturity and understanding for the value of this gift. If they were, I mean, if they, if they were just, you know, plastic from TJ Maxx, I probably would have lost them, mm-hmm. all right, and said, sorry, I'll get you a new pair. But the measure of of the gift and my understanding, my maturity and understanding what they were, matched my maturity and how I cared for it. And in this way, I believe that our financial generosity, for instance, is a thermometer for our spiritual maturity. Our generosity with our time is a thermometer for our spiritual maturity. Our generosity with our abilities, our talents, our gifts, our skills, is a thermometer for our spiritual ability, or our, our, our spiritual maturity. It is an indicator. And, and when we know what we've been given, it will overflow in, in a real and authentic result and manifestation and action in our life. Peter says this is what you have to do to engage in God's mission. To be a good steward is to see that all we have is a tool for the proclamation of the gospel and the good of others. And as our capacity of resources grow, so should our generosity. Give in a measure that fits the gift that has been given to you. And so as we pray for more money, it should be so that we can maximize our our joy of it, as well as our generosity and potential to be a blessing. A steward labors to manage everything in their life in a God-glorifying way. We steward our money so that we're able to give intentionally and generosity. We have a plan. We have a budget. We, we, we plan and say, this is how much I am going to give of my resources. This is how much time I have. Here are the margins in my life where I can give of my time and resources. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm going to use and, and to, to advance God's kingdom. 
if there isn't enough margin financially, if there isn't enough margin of time, then we need to say no to some things so that we can say yes to other things. This is what it means to be a good steward. So for these three areas of engaging in God's mission, the Bible has painted a picture for us to see that as born-again people, as people who have been changed, given a new life, a new identity, loved by God, bound together by his mercy and grace, we are being enlisted in a mission that proclaims God's goodness in both word and deed. So, looking at this exhortation of what it looks like to engage, let's go again, let's, or let's go where we always go and talk about how do we know we're doing well at this as a church? How do we know that we're actually uh, reaching our mission as a church? What does it look like if we're doing this well? 20 years from now, what will Holy Cross look like if we are people who are engaging in God's mission? And I want you to think about this as a church and also in your individual life. One is that we increasingly think, act, and behave like missionaries. We are not given the gospel to be removed from the world, but to be sent into the world as God's co-workers, armed with the gospel grace and empowered by his spirit. To permeate every area of our society where we find people who do not know him, do not care for him, do not love him or worship Jesus and live among them in a way that honors Jesus. Where are people that don't know him? I want to go and live in their life, in their midst, and I want to be an example and a life. I want to guard my heart and my actions, as Peter says, as a sojourner. I want to live amongst them, and I want to proclaim the excellencies of God. What does that look like for you? We all have our context. We have some very small, and then it goes bigger and bigger and broader to become very global. It might mean your very workplace. It might be the person you share a cubicle with. It might be your uh, your uh, your mom's group might be your neighborhood on a larger scale. It could be your community. It can be your city and the world. And it's sitting and asking God, where is my context? Where have you planted me and called me into? What areas of my comfort have you called me out of? And what are you calling me into? You see, for Holy Cross Church, in a way, we were called to this community. I mean, specifically, we didn't just, we didn't just like flip a coin and say, well, this will work. I mean, we had this community, actually, this corner on our hearts. We felt called to be a part. Let's go into this community and engage in all, the, all their idols that they have, all the things that they're worshiping and all the things in their heart that are not Jesus, and let's love them and retell the gospel story in a way that they can understand. What does that look like for you? To think like a missionary is to understand that the people that God has called me to, to live with and around. It's thinking about these people, not as projects, not as items, but as people that God loves, that he's called us to live with and to love. To be a people on mission. To where we formerly thought of all these day-to-day things just as the mundane. It's asking ourselves, how can I engage? How can the mundane things of my life, the day-to-day stuff, engage in the mission of God? A church and a people on mission seek to understand and love people that are different than themselves. If we were to think like a missionary in your context, what would be different? What adjustments would you make? God put you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home. He put you in this city for however long, I don't know. But you are here. And for that reason, nothing is mundane. Nothing is a throwaway. 
Nothing is a coincidence. The second thing is we would have a joyful and purposeful posture towards our community. Now think of posture. Think of posture like, like body posture. Some people have a very poor body posture. You know what this looks like. They're either bent forward by, due to injury or, 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 or whatever. They're, uh, they're just, or they just have like awkward body motions. You know, they just don't know what to do with their hands or something. So people have a posture about them. And, and sometimes it's off-putting or whatever, but it's, it's, a certain, it's being bent in a certain position. When you have a healthy posture, you have a greater range of motion, a greater range of freedom, a greater range of ability to do more things in a healthy way. And so when we think about a posture towards our community, I guess the question is, do you have a bent towards the culture that doesn't know Jesus, that is unhealthy? What's your bent? Do you normally go to a place of, of, of disgust, of, of opposition? And I'm not talking about having disapproval. I'm talking about, like, what is your bent towards people and the culture around you? See, when we have a healthy bent, when we have a healthy posture, we have more range of motion to, to, to be free, to do other things and, and to be creative in how that we, we love and accept and, and, and show the grace of God. But when we have a bent, we can only do one thing. We can only move in one motion, and it's usually falling down. So think of posture in that way. To engage in God's mission means that we don't have a bent on culture. We don't have a bent that is prone to react selfishly or judgmentally. We have a posture that is free to engage with them in a healthy way, with lots of opportunities to love and to cultivate friendship. So I would hope that in years to come, and months and years to come, as we, we ask, what did, you, what did you do this weekend? We might hear different responses, like we had some neighbors over for dinner and gave nights. Oh, really? Did they go to your church? No, they're just neighbors in our neighborhood. We had them and their kids over, and, you know, they don't know Jesus at all. Like, what did you talk about? <laughs> like, they're people. How do you talk to people? You know, hospitality is, we would see that we would grow in hospitality, that we would be people that are hospitable. Hospitality is not a spiritual gift. It's usually added on a lot of times to the list of spiritual gifts, but it's actually not a spiritual gift. It's actually a spiritual command. Oh, we just don't, we're not, we're not, we don't have the gift of hospitality. You don't like people in your house. So, and I thought about this a lot, and you know, hospitality is not, I think it's misunderstood a lot of times, because, and, and even I've misunderstood it in my own life, because we feel like we're very hospitable people. But hospitality, being hospitable doesn't mean you just have game night with your friends all the time. We love having people over to our house. Being hospitable is that you have game night with people that are strangers, your neighbors, and people who don't know Jesus. Real hospitality, that's what the word means. Hospitality is welcoming strangers, treating strangers like friends. I'm imagining that the spiritual gift of hospitality just went, like, there's a lot fewer people in this room that have the spiritual gift. You've realized, I never do that. I rarely do that. I only do it if I'm forced to do that. I pray that as this becomes real in our life, that we pursue this mission, we would be people that have it on our radar and our intention, that we would actually map out time in our week, in our month, in a regular rhythm of our life where we are engaging with strangers and treating them like friends. And lastly, we look like we look less like consumers and hoarders and more like good stewards. 
I struggled with this title a lot, this point, but I like it the way it is. <laughs> because I wasn't happy with it at first, but I think it's the perfect one. Because this is exactly what we can look like. Consumers, hoarders, a sit and soak, it's all about me. What can I do to advance my kingdom, my glory, my comfort? And then once I get that, how could I keep it for myself and protect it really close so that, so that I don't lose it, so that no one takes it from me? Our stewardship relates to our money, our talents, a variety of spiritual gifts, and even our time. So we're going to take up an, a second offering tonight. No, no we're not going to do that. <laughs> you see, I wanted to, this was part, this is intentional to, I want our hearts to be shaped. And in all seriousness, like this isn't why we do an offering. And in part, it's actually why we do an offering before the sermon, because I don't, because I'm insecure enough to judge my value on how much we receive, like after the sermon. <laughs> but I don't want that to be a distraction. <laughs> Bring it back. <laughs> I, I don't want talking about money to be a distraction of what God's actually called us to be as a people. That if we are not good stewards, we're actually being unfaithful stewards. And it's something that we really need to, we need to pray about. We need to search our hearts. We say, Am I being a good steward? And if not, why not? How am I being self-absorbed and selfish? And how am I being a, more like a consumer and a hoarder? What am I afraid of? How am I not trusting in Christ? What am, what am I scared of in my life to not be able to do this? Where have I been irresponsible? And then asking God, God, would you, would you teach me? Would you show me your goodness and let me reflect on, on your generosity and let me be a people, a person who is generous in my life, trusting in you, in you not irresponsible, not careless, but a good steward, a careful and good and generous steward of my money that you've given to me, of my talent, which is a gift, of my time, which is a blessing. All of it belongs to you. We're engaging in God's mission when we have a humble response in making spiritual adjustments in our life in obedience to God's word. So to engage in God's mission is to read what God says, what he calls us to do, to let that pierce our hearts, to be humbled by it, and to say, I want to take steps, I want to be obedient to what he's called me to do. <coughs> so these three together, think of this picture of just this whole person, a person who's looking for opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of God, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were a people without mercy, and now we are a people with mercy. Once we were a people without uh, a, a home, without a citizenship, and now we are called citizens of heaven. We have protection and an identity and a future and an inheritance. And the living God is, is living in us and empowering us and saying, do not be afraid, but live humbly and faithfully and recklessly pursuing my mission. For some of us, this means vocationally. It means, I think God's calling me to full-time ministry. For some of us, it means in, in, in other areas. For most of us, it will mean in other areas. Nothing is mundane. Nothing in your life is a throwaway. So let's engage in God's mission together, looking for opportunities to, to open our doors and welcome strangers so that they would see us worshiping God and, they would, and their hearts would be pierced with his grace. And hearts would be turned to trust in Jesus. Let's pray together.
For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Thank you.